John writes, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it. And there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Would you pray with me? Father, we we want to understand your word. That's why we've gathered here. We want to know your revelation. We want to know you. And we want to live know how we should live in light of what you have revealed in these in these chapters. And so I pray that you would help me to be clear and that you would give each one of us insight to understand, especially these these portions that are difficult to understand and where there's such various interpretations. And I also pray that you would encourage our hearts, you'd strengthen us for tomorrow, um, but also for the days and years ahead as we face difficulty and challenge and, and, and need hope for those days. I pray that you would solidify our faith even through your word this evening. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, in Mark 13, when his disciples asked Jesus when the end is going to come, he famously answered, No one knows the day or that hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the end will come. Despite this assertion that no one's going to know the time of Christ's coming, many people have made their guesses uh, throughout history. Um, And yet none of those has been correct. But I can tell you when Christ will return. In fact, the point of the text before us is to reveal to us when the end will finally come. It will come when the angel sounds the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet. Very basic outline to the passage. Uh, We have the angel that's revealed in verses 1 through 7 and his voice. And then in verses 8 through 11, 
describes the book that, or the scroll that this, the angel has in his hand. Let's look at verse 1 to begin our study. It says, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed the cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, uh, an angel has come uh, when he wants to reveal critical information. When, in, when critical information needs to be revealed, an angel will descend. So, in 5.2, it was an angel that arrived and asked the critical question of, who will be able to open the scroll? And then, of course, uh, the Lamb of the tribe of Judah is able to do that. In 8.3, an angel is given incense, which accompanies the prayers of the saints. In 18.1, an angel announces the fall of Babylon. And in Revelation 20, an angel is uh, who descends to, uh, with the key to the bottomless pit that will incarcerate Satan during the reign of Christ. And here, an angel appears... And when he sounds the seventh trumpet, he says the end will finally come and there will be no more delay. So you might recall that uh, the, the question as to when will Christ come? When will vengeance come? When will, uh, when will the prayers of the saints finally be answered? This is the question that was asked by the martyrs in Revelation 6. Beginning in verse 9, it says, when he opened the fifth seal, <clears throat> I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain by the word of God, for the word of God, and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer to this question is answered now, when the seventh angel the angel with the seventh trumpet is announced here in Revelation 10. God will complete his vengeance and their vindication when the seventh trumpet sounds. Now, scholars have debated the identity of this uh, angel. Uh, there's good reason to believe that this is actually Christ himself, what the Old Testament, who the Old Testament referred to as the angel of the Lord. Uh, the angel is clothed with a cloud. Just like the angel of the Lord led the Israelites uh, as a pillar of cloud in the wilderness, a rainbow surrounds this angel's head just as a rainbow surrounds the throne of Christ. Revelation 4.3. The angel roars like a lion. And Christ himself is identified earlier as the lion of Judah. In 4.3. Or sorry, 5.5. 5. The face of the angel shines like the sun, just like Christ in 1.16. Even his feet are described as pillars of fire. And Christ led his people through the wilderness as not just with a cloud, but as a pillar of fire. And his feet are described as polished bronze in Revelation 1.15. So there's lots of reasons to believe that this is actually referring to Christ. There's other good reasons also to assume that it's not referring to Christ. First of all, the term angel is used 67 times in the book of Revelation. And not once does that term refer to Christ. This would be the only exception. And I think it would be an odd exception that then that, that it would refer to Christ and not one of his servants here. Moreover, in uh, Revelation 19.10, John is tempted to actually worship an angel. And he's severely rebuked. 
and told to worship God alone, which suggests that there's a strong distinction that needs to be made between angels in this book and Christ himself. But at the end of the day, his identity is not that critical. Because whether it's Jesus or simply an angel who's representing him, what he proclaims in this book uh, possesses divine authority nonetheless. And what he is proclaiming in this chapter is that when the seventh and last trumpet sounds, all of God's redemptive promises will finally come to fruition. And Christ will return to rule upon the earth. But to better understand what's being conveyed here, I think it'll be helpful to look at a number of parallel passages. Um, First of all, 1 Corinthians 15 anticipates this moment when Paul describes the resurrection of believers. If you flip there, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 51, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of the eye at... The last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. It says when this last trumpet sounds, that's when the resurrection is going to happen. And one of the best reasons to assume that this is not Christ, but an archangel is on account of what is said in First Thessalonians chapter four. In First Thessalonians four, it describes this same event. Verse 16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So you have the voice of the archangel and the trumpet. And then the dead in Christ will rise first, the resurrection. And then we who are alive or are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, the only archangel that's mentioned in the Bible is Michael, uh, at least the only one that's mentioned explicitly, and that's in Jude 9. But Michael's also mentioned three other times in the Bible, uh, particularly in the book of Daniel. And he's described as the great protector or prince of the Jews. And remarkably, when he's described in Daniel chapter 12, I would encourage you to look at that passage in Daniel 12, it is in the context of the final resurrection and the end of days. So you have Daniel, the trumpet, um, the resurrection, all being described in context together there as well. It says in verse 1, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So because of all of these parallels in First Thessalonians, First uh, Corinthians, Daniel 12, as well as here in um, Revelation 10, because of all these parallels, I, I think it's best to understand that all three of these things happen together. You have the archangel Michael, you have the return of Christ, you have the resurrection of believers, and... Um, uh, but, and all of that happens at the sounding of the last trumpet. So, what immediately draws John's attention here, though, about this angel, is that he holds an open scroll in his right hand. It says, And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea 
and his left foot on the land. And the significance of this scroll that he has, or this book, is developed in verses 8 through 11, and so we'll, we'll talk about that then. But I also want to note how John describes this angel. He's standing with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. What this conveys is that what he's sharing is as it pertains to the whole world, both the earth and the sea. And when we consider in verse 1 that he's coming down out of the sky from the heavens, it, it, it depicts that this angel, what he proclaims, refers to both sky, earth, and land. In other words, the whole cosmos. So this is not just a revelation that's going to be given to Israel, but it pertains to the whole world. And it signifies God's sovereignty over everything and everything that's going to happen in the last days. Nothing. Not one judgment that's going to be poured out is outside of God's divine purpose and timing. Even one act of rebellion uh, of one insignificant sinner is not out of God's sovereign control. Everything is happening according to his plan, his purpose, and his timing. And of course the point then for us is that we can trust him. As we see things go from bad to worse in this world, we don't have to panic, we don't have to fear. When it seems like the world is coming off of its hinges, when, when violence and, and plagues, pestilence and famine wipe out the world's population, when the, when the heavens seem to be ripped apart and it looks like the, the world is, and society is, is like a, a train wreck, a dumpster fire, as it careens into wickedness and folly, we don't need to panic. We don't need to fear because we can rest knowing what the psalmist in 115 discovered, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Nothing of what's happening is an accident. This leads us to verse 3. And when he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars, and when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Now, again, you'll, if you recall from 1 Thessalonians 4, it says that Jesus will return with the voice of an archangel. And the voice here is described as the roar of a lion. And the imagery is actually taken from the Old Testament when Yahweh is said to roar when he comes to protect his people. And note in particular the prophecy of Jeremiah 25.30. Jeremiah 25, we'll begin reading in verse 30. I'll have you guys flip many times in this passage just to see all of the, how, how all this is drawing on. Uh, scriptures throughout the Bible, beginning in verse 30, Jeremiah 25, it says, You therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, Yahweh will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. So he's going to roar against his enemies amongst his own people, and also all the inhabitants of the earth. And the clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for Yahweh has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares Yahweh. The prophet Hosea seems to describe the same event. In Hosea 11, verse 10, 
says, they shall go after Yahweh. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares Yahweh. And Hosea is actually describing the return of all the exiles who have been scattered throughout the nations. When Christ returns, he prophesies he's going to gather all of them back to his land when he will rule them in Jerusalem. And he's calling them to return here. But of course, they won't return until he establishes his kingdom there. Now, along with the roar of this angel comes seven peals of thunder. Now, thunder in Scripture is representative of God's judgment. Uh, uh, Hannah, actually, in 1 Samuel, in her prayer that Mary and her Magnificat cat draws from, at the very end of that prayer, she actually makes some eschatological uh, statements. Uh, She prophesies that the Lord will thunder against his opponents in 1 Samuel Chapter 2, verse 10, it says, The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So this this coming king, the Messiah, will reign when he comes to judge the ends of the earth. And he'll announce that coming when he thunders in heaven. There's also probably an allusion here to Psalm 29. I encourage you to flip there. Uh, This is where God speaks like thunder seven times. Now, what's remarkable about Psalm 29 is I think rightly understood it's an eschatological psalm. It's, It's looking forward to the time when the Messiah will come to reign. I'll begin reading in verse 3. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh over many waters, alluding to the the voice of his judgment over the flood. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yahweh breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. And just uh, looking forward to this immense earthquake. The voice of Yahweh flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. But we'll notice as the psalmist ends, it is when the voice of Yahweh sounds that the Lord will give strength to his people. Verse 11. Yahweh will bless his people with peace. That shalom will finally come when the Messiah returns. And so the roar accompanied by the seven peals of thunder indicate that God is about to complete the vindication of his people, pouring out vengeance upon the enemies of God. But it's at this point that one more surprising thing takes place in the book. I think it's one of the surprising things in Revelation. When John is told not to write down what the seven peals of thunder say. Verse 4, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and don't write them. Now, this is surprising because the whole point of the book of Revelation is to reveal God's plan for the future. Why 
if the point, I mean, that's why it's called revelation. Why would God reveal something to John that he doesn't want John to reveal to us? It stands in direct contrast with what is said in Revelation 22.10. When he says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So why seal up what the seven thunders say then? Just, and just this. Well, first we should note that the request to seal up what is said is actually very similar to what was said to the prophet Daniel. If you go to Daniel chapter 8, you're getting very familiar with flipping to Old Testament prophecies. Daniel 8, it says in verse 26, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision refers to many days from now. And then if you just flip a couple more pages forward, Daniel 12, verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the end of, time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then he says in verse 9, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Well, documents, even today, are sealed so that others can't learn what's contained within those documents until the time for them to be open, similar to Christmas presents, right? We wrap presents, put them under the tree, so that whoever we're giving them to won't know what's contained until the right time. So, same thing is here. There will be a time when we know what the seven thunders will say, but the time is not now for us to know this. The sealing up of what the thunders say will be revealed when the time is right. So, but what it does signify is that God is going to pour out horrific judgments upon the earth at this time. And we don't need to know all of the gory details about how bad it's going to be. He's revealed to us what he thinks we need to know. And, and there's, there's more that could be said, but he doesn't think that it's best for us to know about that yet. And I think there may be a tie here also to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he said, I know, describing his own uh, vision of heaven, that there was a man caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. He heard things, but he cannot reveal those things. There are glories about God and even about his judgments, which our finite minds can't handle. And so we're not going to have that knowledge until he believes that the time is right. There are things that our finite minds can't handle seeing or even hearing about. This brings us to verse 5. So then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea should be yeah, who I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he has preached to his servants, the prophets. Now, that repetition, verse 5, that the angel is, is still seen as standing on the land and the sea. Again, it's a reminder that everything that's happening, God is in complete sovereign control over. 
And the oath that he swears is based upon a common Old Testament formula for an oath. You might recall in the Old Testament, they would say, as the Lord lives. Well, the formula here is expanded to infinity in swearing by him who lives forever and ever. So this also emphasizes God's eternality and his sovereignty over creation is is then emphasized in verse 6. Who created heaven and the things in it and earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it. So you see that, again, it's trying to emphasize God is sovereign over everything that's going on right now in the world. He has dominion over all of these spheres, heaven, earth, sea. In other words, he's sovereign over everything. And that's why there will be no longer any delay. Nothing will keep him from bringing this promise to pass. He is delayed, but he's purposely delayed his time up till now. And, and these verses are actually a direct allusion to Daniel 12:7. Back to Daniel, for good reason. Daniel's the eschatological Old Testament prophet. In verse 7, it says this. I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and left towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Right? Same thing. He's making an oath. The time will come at the right time. And what these verses here in Daniel say is that the, the, the aim of the three and a half years of tribulation, the time, times, and a half time that's being prophesied, it's not just to punish Gentile unbelievers, but actually to shatter the strength of Israel. Shattering the power of the holy people, it says. So God's aim is to bring his people to an end of themselves, that they would finally look to him. They'd finally cry out and recognize that they have rebelled against their Messiah. And here is when they will turn. In fact, this is precisely what God prophesies in Deuteronomy chapter 32. You flip there. Deuteronomy 32, beginning in verse 35. You'll recognize this first line. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. This is actually the, the verse John Edwards preached on for the famous sermon, sermon in the, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In due time, their foot will slip. He says, for the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. For Yahweh will vindicate his people. And have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. So this is, this is at the end. And when the Lord will see that they have come to an end of themselves. So the tribulation will be awful, terrible. And yet it's purposed for good. And it just, again reminds us that God is a jealous lover. He is far more jealous than any person who's ever lived. And his love isn't, isn't defined by American sentimentality giving us what we feel entitled to. He disciplines us in love because he knows what's best for us. 
And he's disciplining his people here that they might look to him and be saved and not permanently fall away from him. And there's no jealousy like God's jealousy. And the Bible teaches that God will nearly destroy the, the entire earth in order to finally bring his people back to themselves. I mean, all of what we're seeing here, yes, it's God bringing judgment upon the nations. He makes that clear. But it's also to finally bring his people back to him. Because he loves them and he will not forsake his covenant. And that's the point of these verses to communicate that to us. That, that he's in absolute control over the great tribulation in the last days. In fact, if you keep looking at Deuteronomy 32 verses 39 to, to 42, it's where Yahweh lifts his hand and swears that he will take vengeance on his adversaries. See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift my hand to heaven and I swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives for the long-haired heads of the enemy. And the swearing of the oath here just certifies the truthfulness of what's being said. And what, what, what's being proclaimed is finally, and here in Deuteronomy 32 is finally taking place. You might recall in Hebrews 6.17, it says, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And he's guaranteeing that he will bring vengeance upon his enemies. In Deuteronomy 32, he does the same thing in Daniel 12, and it's being emphasized here in Revelation chapter 10. There will no longer be any delay. When the seventh trumpet is sounded. And that's what's described in chapter 11 verses 11 through 19, which we'll look at in the weeks ahead. But now let's look at beginning of verse eight. So the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I would eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And the point of actually these verses is that John is being commissioned to prophesy. It actually alludes to the experience of, the, of Jeremiah and Ezekiel who were commissioned by the Lord. And like John, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel were, were asked by God to eat his word. And they found also that they were sweet, even though what they were going to prophesy was judgment and woe. Let's look at each of these commissionings. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 3, is told this, Son of man, Feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Jump down to verse 7. 
But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Similarly, Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 15. Verse 16, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Now, what's strange about what Jeremiah says here, your words were found and I ate them and they were sweet, is actually the words that he is going to prophesy, which are being described as sweet, are actually horrific judgments. Earlier in, the prophet, earlier in the chapter, God tells them to prophesy, verse 3, I will appoint over them, referring to Israel, four kinds of destroyers, declares Yahweh, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, and the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jeremiah says, your words were sweet to me. And God's word is sweet, of course, because it's altogether righteous. It's completely just. It's completely good because it's, it's his words. As the psalmist says, which we all agree, they are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And because it's the word of God to sinful men and our God is holy, it's bitter in the judgment that it brings. When you mix the sweetness of holiness with the bitterness of sin, that's what's going to happen. There's a bitterness and a sweetness in almost every biblical doctrine, if you think about it. I mean, consider that the most wonderful doctrine that Jesus saves sinners completely from their sin. But the cost of the salvation was crucifixion of the Holy Son of God. That's bitter. All who repent and believe in Him will have eternal life. That is sweet. But that eternal life is only for those who repent. That's bitter. Those who reject Him will spend eternity in everlasting torment. We love the sweetness that God is holy. But it's bitter to think that only, only those who are holy can draw near to Him. Sinners cannot come into His presence. Or they'll be destroyed. It's bitter to hear that God will not keep us from suffering. We're told throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments, that we should expect pain and trials and loss in this life. But it's sweet to know that God promises that He's going to work all of those trials, all that suffering, all that loss for good. God has elected Christians from eternity past for salvation. That's sweet. Especially because we deserve hell. But He also reveals that most people are not chosen. Narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. Broad is the road to destruction. Most people he has not chosen and they will never experience freedom from their sin. The stuff that we just live for, they have no inkling of. That's bitter. 
And one day Christ will return and take us all to reign with him in glory forever and ever in glorified bodies. But for unbelievers, Christ's return will be the most horrific event they could ever imagine. The event that we're looking forward to with all our hearts, which we plead for, will be the most horrific experience for unbelievers at that time. It's horror amplified to infinity. And so what, what, what this angel is revealing to John is, is that what he has to preach is sweet. It will bring comfort to believers, but it is bitter. It will not be something he enjoys proclaiming because of the bitterness. And to preach and teach the Word of God, it, it, it's a bittersweet experience. Even, even Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians 2, We are the Rome of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So the one, a fragrance from death to death, from the other, a fragrance of life to life. So he asks, who's sufficient for these things? The point is, nobody's sufficient. But nonetheless, that's what he's been called to do, and thus he will preach. And so actually when John chooses to take the scroll out of that angel's right hand, what he's doing is he's saying, I agree to do. I agree to proclaim what you've commissioned me to proclaim. I will reveal these words. I will preach what the scroll reveals. Even though it's a a bittersweet commission that he's been given. And what the scroll reveals are all the glories and horrors that will be revealed at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And it's at that seventh trumpet's blast that Christ will return to the earth to gather his children home to him. Heavenly Father, we look forward to that day. And yet, Lord, we grieve because we know an incalculable amount of people will suffer horrifically. And we realize, Lord, that that there is no reason that we should be separated from them. Not only should we deserve to suffer all the torments that you will pour out upon this earth, Lord, we deserve to suffer in eternity on account of our rebellion against you. And so we simply respond by, by, by giving you thanks. Lord, we don't deserve any of this. And we don't deserve to even have any of this revealed to us. And so we thank you for your word and we, we just ask that you would help us to be faithful to it. Help us to be faithful to share both the glories but also the threats, the warnings that are contained here so that we would be effective in reaching the lost around us. Help us to be an evangelistic church, but a a church that is full of sincerity, that is not arrogant, but brokenhearted, even in, in how we proclaim every doctrine that we hold fast to that is revealed in your word. And we pray all these things in Christ's name.